Over the course of July, you know that we've been doing this whole idea of the 5th of July. You all voted on topics, and for this fifth Sunday, you decided that I get to do a Reader's Digest version of the book of Revelation. Which the first dilemma with that is that there's a whole generation that has no clue what Reader's Digest is. Right? I even looked at it. It still exists, which is crazy to me. It's still out there. It's still in the netherworld of some place. But I'm like, well, maybe it's more like a USA Today version. But then some generations are like, I don't even know what that is. Right? So I'm like, well, it's like a TikTok version of Revelation. That's what we're doing today. So that's kind of what the whole target uh, of the day is, is to do that. And I'd like to say for the record, that is no easy task at all. So I know you love me, but today, that's a tough one, right? Because any of us who have looked at that particular book, we know that it's just laden with symbols and ideas and vivid imagery. And if you really get into the scholarship side of it, it's deeply heavy with Old Testament images where you kind of need to know the Old Testament really well to even get a handle on what's fully going on with the book of Revelation. And then add to it the fact that it's 22 chapters in length, right? If I was to try to do this with any kind of wisdom or insight, on a single day, that would be pretty tough. Especially adding to the fact that there is tons of speculation behind this particular book of the Bible, like probably more than any other book. And over the last five decades, there's been tons of people that have tried to speak into the content of this, and they've taken the Bible in one hand and a newspaper or a website or the news in general and the other, and they've tried to figure out to decipher all the images and symbols and ideas and what are the bowls and what are the trumpets and what are the seals and what are the beasts and what is the, you know, all this stuff. And I realized that today I'm going to do us all a favor by dealing with none of that. You're like, how do you do that and deal with none of it? Well, I think there is a deeper thing to the book that I hope to try to unearth for us today, because all of that speculation is kind of just that. But I think if we get over the top of the speculation and we just go, man, what's the big story? that we can kind of gather. Let's not get into the weeds of all this stuff. In fact, even some of the ideas as far as like the seven years of tribulation and the rapture and all that stuff in the history of the church, that's a relatively new kind of theology, less than 200 years old. So the church wrestled with this book and had different ideas for a long time. And I think kind of in the spirit of the history of the book, my hope is to again, get up over the top, see the big picture and even how that still applies for us in an important and powerful way today. And so that is my heart. And so we're going to try to do this, figure out what a revelation is doing for the Christian in our own space. And we're going to see if we can uh, do that in an abbreviated fashion. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray and we're going to get right to business. We don't have notes in your app today because I don't have slides. You know how tough it is to do revelation without slides? Oh, wow, terrible. But we're going to work it out anyway. We're going to ask you to do what the early church did, what most of Christianity did, which is they heard this book and then they visualized in their head what's going on. And then from that, they figured out a way to live. So we're going to try to do that as well. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for the fact that, man, there are parts of your word that are super easy, like we get it. And there are other parts that we have to kind of sift a little bit and ponder and visualize. And that's certainly this particular work as well. And so I thank you for today to be out here in this field, to be uh, with this body of people. And I thank you that you uh, love us so deeply and dearly. And you call us to be different in this world in your name. And so I pray that that is the lesson we learned today as we open up the last piece of literature in your canon given to us. So we thank you for this day and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so the last document in your Bible is called the book of Revelation. It is not called the book of Revelations, does not have an S on the end. It's not multiple revelations. It's a single revelation 
of Jesus written by a dude named John. So John becomes kind of the mediary of this whole thing. Uh, I'm not certain. In fact, I kind of lean in the direction that the John of Revelation is not the John of the gospel or, or the John of the letters that we just went through. I think it's a different John. The style of language here and the Greek articulation is different than the other stuff of John. So it seems to be another John in that early era, but God has used him and raised him up and had Jesus speak to him. And in a weird sort of way, what you'll notice if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, which puts the the words of Jesus in red, uh, you'll notice a lot of red letters in the book of Revelation. So in chapter two, chapter three, chapter 22, you'll see red letters. So in a weird sort of way, the book of Revelation, you could also call it the seven epistles of Jesus the seven letters of Jesus to seven churches. And that's what you see in chapter two and chapter three, right? There's the series of uh, different local bodies of faith and Jesus speaks to them and five of them are not doing well. Two of them are holding up. And so he's trying to give them a warning, some stimulation, some encouragement, some reminder of what it is they're meant to do. But it comes in this idea of this fancy phrase, apocalyptic vision, right? That's what the book is all about. It's an apocalyptic vision. Now, when we hear the word apocalyptic, we think of like a dystopian future. You know, like apocalyptic is when all the buildings are sent to rubble and everything is just a bleak sky and it's all obliterated and that's apocalypse. But in their world, this was a form of literature. This was a style of writing. And so it's very poetic, it's very vivid, um, and it really seeks to kind of uh, use stimulation more than prescription. So when the early Christians were hearing this letter written or read to them, because most of them didn't read, so it would be read to them and they were just hearing all of this colorful language, they would realize, oh, this is the style of writing that, that wants to get our attention and cause us to wonder, cause us to speculate, but in a way that reminds us of the real core message that's embedded into this. And so that's part of the other thing you have to understand about this idea of apocalyptic, but it's also a vision. And with a vision, it's not so much that you want to take the vision and try to figure out how do I decipher the vision, but rather you want to just kind of get high orbit and see the big picture of the vision and maybe some of the subtle themes that are kind of laying within the text itself. And so I'll give you an example of this because there's two ways that people approach visions in the Bible. One is to say, I need to figure out what every symbol is and how that symbol has a meaning in the real world. And so you're cataloging in the book of revelation, hundreds of symbols, like what's that symbol and what's that symbol and what's that symbol. And that's a way that some people approach this. Another way to approach this is a little bit what we see in the book of acts. So in chapter 10, uh, Peter has this moment where he falls into a trance, it says, and he has a vision And in this vision, there's all sorts of things that happen. So, uh, for example, the heavens open. And as the heavens open, there's something like a sheet that descends. And there's four corners to the sheet. And then inside the sheet, there are animals and there are reptiles and there are birds. And then God says, I want you to take, to kill, and to eat. And Peter says, no way. And God's like, yes way. And it happens three different times, comes down, take, kill, and eat, comes down, take, kill, and eat, comes down, take, kill, and eat, and then it goes back into heaven. Now, what we could do with the vision is say, well, what are the birds? What are the reptiles? What are the creeping things? What are the animals? Are there? What are the four corners? What is the sheet? Why take? Why kill? Why eat? Are we supposed to take, kill, and eat things? Like, what is this? What do we do with the vision? And when you actually distill it all down, it's a simple vision that says, hey, Peter, go to the Gentiles. Like that's the core of its message. All of the details are vivid, but they teach kind of a singular idea. 
And I think when it comes to this particular work of the Bible, that's also what's going on. We want to understand that that's what's happening. And so while there's lots of detail, there's all this vivid language, the simple message is about God versus Satan, good versus evil, life versus death, and flourishing versus decay. Right, And that's the thing you understand, the tension point that Jesus is speaking to these churches through John, his ambassador. Now, one other thing about the structure of this book I want to kind of help us understand a little bit is that there's kind of two generalized ways that people read it. Some people read it very linear, like there's seals and then there's trumpets and then there's bowls and there's this structure of it's just like an ascending staircase to a final conclusion. That's one way to read it, very linear. The other way people read it is, is very cyclical. Like you go through the bowl judgments and then that's the conclusion where Jesus comes. Then you go through the, the trumpet judgments and that's the conclusion where Jesus comes. You go through the seal judgment, that's the conclusion. Depending on how you're looking at it all, it seems to be maybe like kind of just retelling the story over and over and over again from different points of view. And I tend to think that that's really what's going on. I approach this much more in the cyclical fashion than I do necessarily in the linear fashion. And what it really seems to them be describing is the, the dynamic of every age. You know, so in every generation, the world is kind of the same. There's this pressure between the things of Christ and the things of the world. There's this constant challenge between the kingdom emerging into our existence and then the anti-kingdom pushing against that. And every generation must face the same challenge and the same pressure to live for the person of Jesus in a world that wants to be very counter to the things of Christ. So it has meaning then for every generation that looks at this book. And when you go through the book, then you see as that cyclical model is playing out that the camera angle keeps changing, right? So, so sometimes the camera angle is looking at the throne room of God. And other times the camera angle is looking at the stuff of the world. So chapter one, man, you're in heaven. Then you get to chapter two and chapter three, you're on earth. You, you get to chapter four and chapter five, you're in heaven. You get to chapter six, you're back on earth. Chapter seven, you're in heaven. Chapter eight, all the way to 18, you're on earth. And then kind of in 19, it's heaven coming to earth. And then chapter 20, you're back into heaven. And then 21 and 22 is heaven coming, re-merging with earth and changing everything. So just picture that camera angles are flipping back and forth. There's the throne room. There's the earth. There's the throne room. There's the earth. And as the story unfolds, strangely enough, it's like a Broadway musical, which I know is a weird illustration, but, but actually, I love it because if you've ever watched like or seen Les Mis or Hamilton, right? It's a dramatic story that has all these really potent, powerful songs sprinkled in to reinforce the story. And in the book of Revelation, there's like 12 different like worship songs that break out. And they're kind of like spirituals. They're not just simply hymns, but it's like this idea of you're waiting for the end. And so you're, you're celebrating God, but you're longing for the conclusion. And so this whole thing reminds me of a bit of a divine musical that plays out. And so if we tried to simplify this whole thing, look at the symbols and everything else. Revelation is like a cosmic game of chess where God is the master chess player and he has all the moves worked out, but it's playing out. And while there's a lot of pieces on the board, there's a lot of different options that can be played. In the end, it's just a game of capture the flag. And God is going to capture the flag. And so he's just moving the pieces, playing out the whole thing in this kind of binary fashion. So with that then, what is the binary thing that we can understand? 
And this is helpful. There's a guy named Scott McKnight has a great book on the uh, book of Revelation that I found really, really helpful in this. And he says, if you simplify it, here's what it is. The book of Revelation is about team lamb versus team dragon. That's it, right? These are the iconic symbols in there. Therefore, what you have is the Jerusalem above and the Babylon below. You have the mother that gives birth to the Christ in the church. You have the harlot that gives birth to false and faulty religion. You have the living creatures versus the wild beast that comes out of the sea and the wild beast that comes out of the land. You have the 24 heavenly elders versus the kings of the earth. And you have the witnesses of Christ who are slain. And you have the slayers of the witnesses of Christ. Like it's just very, it's either A or B. It's black or white. It's plus or negative. That's what you're dealing with. And so then what it begs to ask of us is whose team are you on? Are you doing life like heaven's lamb? Are you doing life like earth's dragon? Do you hold to the values of the Jerusalem to come? Or do you hold to the values of the Babylon that is? Because throughout the book, it keeps pulling from this idea of Babylon. And that word, it it should be like when we use like the the term Hitler, right? We know that just that name has all the stuff embedded into it. And in the same way, that word in Revelation has all of this baggage there. Like we know what Babylon's all about. Right? It's all about force and power and brutality. It's all about control. It's all about the best of this world in the worst way possible. But it causes the listener then to extrapolate and ask the question, how is my world still like Babylon today? And how might I get tempted to love Babylon that is now versus the Jerusalem that's to come? How am I tempted to maybe follow the dragon more than I follow the lamb? How do I do life in the spirit of the dragon and his Babylon more than I do life in the spirit of the lamb and his Jerusalem? Because when Jesus speaks to the seven churches, like I said, five of them are unhealthy. So unhealthy that he's about to take his blessing from them. And what he has at the core is this idea that, you know what, far too often throughout the history of the church, the church is very tempted to take on more the spirit of Babylon than the spirit of the church. And so like John and Jesus are speaking and they're like, there's too much Babylon in your churches. There's too much identity of the world in your communities of faith. And we need more the stuff of Jerusalem in the stuff of Babylon. We don't need Babylon in the stuff of Jerusalem. We don't need the spirit of the dragon in the stuff that should be the spirit of the lamb. And so again, for every generation, it brings some level of kind of, I don't know, contemplation, understanding of these things. Because just because we declare a thing doesn't mean we're necessarily practicing a thing. Especially because of this strange, true reality that we all swim in the waters of Babylon, so to speak. We're breathing the air of Babylon. We're immersed in the stuff of Babylon because we're still locked into this planet. We're still just every day living under the rules that kind of drive everything in this world. And oftentimes they're so contrary to the crazy upside down and backwards nature of Christ that Christ now kind of shakes us up with this jarring book. Because really, Revelation is a critique about the world's values, and it's a critique of the church that sometimes embraces the world's values, and we need to kind of live more team lamb and less team dragon. So we're going to compare the values of each, right? Because here's the thing, team dragon and his Babylon, it's kind of timeless. Don't just think it's, you know, for thousands of years ago. Like in John's day, Rome was Babylon, right? He knows that. 
And before it was that, there was the Greeks, and before that, the Persians, and before that, the actual Babylonians, and before that, the Assyrians, and before that, the Egyptians. And then you move forward to today, there's plenty of Babylons to go around. So what makes the world go around in some ways, right? In fact, if anything, these iterations apply in every new nation that emerges, because I think what you really get to at the center of Revelation is that every nation is Babylon. Every culture is sort of Babylon. It all flirts with the same value system. So what is the value system of, of Babylon and the dragon and team dragon? Well, it's all peppered throughout the book of Revelation. But if you look to chapter 17 through 19, and again, I'm not quoting the passages because it's just, it's so bulky, right? But I'm going to give you the eight values that seem to emerge in this particular piece of literature. The first thing that really documents Babylon and Team Dragon is it's very anti-Christ or anti-God. And I want to be clear what I mean by that. When I say anti-Christ, it's not just simply it denies Christ, but it denies Christ as Christ articulates himself. Right? And that's a different subtle thing because you go, well, Antichrist is just clear. They won't even promote the name of Christ, won't use the name of Christ. But so often there has been things that in the name of Christ are very anti-Christ. Things in the name of God do not honor the stuff of God. And Rome, man, their biggest problem with the Christians was twofold. One, they wouldn't worship the Caesar. They would only worship Jesus. And so the Caesar's like, dude, if you want to share the throne, I'm great with that. But you can't just deny me and accept him. So that was one problem. But the other problem that Rome had with Christianity is, frankly, it leveraged counter themes. Rome is about strength, power, might, control. It was about honor through a level of violence. And then the Christians roll in and they're grace-filled and they're compassionate and they're kind and they were radically nonviolent. And they leveraged the love of neighbor and the love of enemy. And Rome's like, that's going to make us weak. But we don't do that here. And, and so you see for hundreds of years, Rome was wiping out Christians. And for hundreds of years, you know what the Christians did? They accepted their, their, their death with joy and with peace. Because they believed they were to live team lamb in a world of team dragon. And, and, and so with that, there, were, there was this love of kind of idolatry in Rome. Let's make gods in our image that accomplish our goals and do our things and solidify the world that we want. But Jesus is radically different and he's changing the world under a different set of rules. And so the first challenge, the first value was making gods in their image as opposed to really embracing Christ and his image for the world. The second thing that Rome struggled with, that many generations struggle with, was a preoccupation with opulence and wealth. You see that pretty heavily. That they're like, man, it's all about having security through prosperity, and prosperity gives us more security, so we need pro more prosperity, and then we can show off, we've got these great buildings, and this great culture, and all this art, and all of this learning and discovery, and they just celebrated their opulence. The third thing about Rome that was very Babylon-esque is they administered peace and security through force and fear. This was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that came at the end of a Roman spear. Where they're like, we're going to leverage a sense of terror to keep security and law and justice. So it was like injustice in the name of justice. But that's the way Babylon works. That's the way Team Dragon does things. It was also very image-driven. In fact, if anything, Rome wanted the world to look at them and say, oh, you're amazing. You're exquisite. You're so sophisticated. You've accomplished so much. We praise you, Rome. And Rome loved it because all, all image-driven societies want to be praised for what they do and who they are. 
Next, you see in Revelation that the problem of Rome, the problem of Babylon is it's militaristic, right? It had a vast military. Talks about how the kings give power to the beast to wage war, right? And that's how Rome grew and expanded and was well, so, so well known and, and amass more technology and amass more wealth. In fact, if anything, their military subsidized the other values, We can be opulent because we have a military. We can be powerful because we have a military. We can be praised because we have a military. We can make gods in our image because we have a military to back uh, the wrath of our gods, right? It's all there. But those are the values of Team Dragon. We also see that they are incredibly uh, economy-driven, That's chapter 18 in particular, man. There's all these merchants and ships and they're bringing goods everywhere. And they kind of celebrate their capacity to create vast wealth-driven engines. And in this, part of the problem is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And there's an injustice system in that. But that's the stuff of Team Dragon. They're also incredibly pleasure-based. They love pleasure, be it sexual, emotional, psychological, tangible, Right? It's just constantly about, hey, man, we, we have all of this sophistication. We've grown so powerful and strong. We do it so we can enjoy life to the fullest. And so that was kind of their spirit. And then embedded in all of this was the final value of arrogance. The beast boasts. The beast of the sea, the beast of the land, they boast. The harlot that rides the beast, if you've ever read that. The harlot's religion, basically. The religion of any Babylonian thing. And it's just like, you know what? I never mourn. Because, man, we're, we're all together. We got it so figured out. The greatest on earth. We're the greatest. We're so secure, so safe, so capable in our own strength and might. And so the Babylon ethos, the tree, team dragon attitude is antichrist-like, opulent, forceful, image-driven, militaristic, money-focused, pleasure-based, and arrogant. And so what Revelation is getting at is that anybody who embraces those values or swears allegiance to those goals or leverages those tools embrace the values of the dragon. This is just high orbit, right? That's what it's warning to these seven churches and five of which they were in those waters. That's why five of me says, man, you're in bad space. For all sorts of reasons. So like the church of Ephesus, its problems were different than the church of Laodicea, for example, but they were all kind of messing with the same stuff. So Laodicea says, we're wealthy and we're rich and we have need of nothing. And then Jesus says, don't you realize you're poor, you're miserable, you're blind, you're naked. You think you got everything, but you don't have anything because you're playing team dragon, even though you claim team lamb. Where like the church of Ephesus at the very beginning of the seven letters, he's like, man, you guys have good doctrine. You have good deeds. You do all this stuff, but you don't have love. You're team dragon. You got to get team lamb going back in your life, back in your heart, right? So it's a pretty advanced warning. It's a pretty serious indictment. And it's, a, it's kind of important to realize that, oh, that's right. We all are tempted to that, right? We all are. And we're tempted to it because it gives us what we want or it assures us of what we seek or it provides for our cravings regarding security or prosperity or autonomy, and so when I kind of go through Revelation at this level, the, the first thing I do is go, how am I team dragon, right? How am I team Babylon here? How, how do I love the, the principles or the values of Babylon in my life that I don't want to acknowledge, that I don't want to be open about in my own heart and cravings? So in that sense, I go, I think it's very confronting, but it's not confrontation out of a, a, a lack of love for Christ's church. It's a, it's a confrontation because he loves his church. He wants his church to be unleashed. And he wants his church to have a life abundant. And he knows that life abundant is not found in the principles of Babylon. It's not found in Team Dragon. 
It's only going to be found in the principles of the Jerusalem above and living that out. It's going to be found in the principles of the lamb who is Christ. And this is why team lamb is so different, right? But here's the thing that gets really tricky about team lamb. I want you to picture a fairy tale for a minute. And in the fairy tale, uh, this dragon comes and begins to stalk a village and begins to attack the village and is burning down different huts in the village, grabbing people by its claws and carrying them off wherever. And so the village is terrified and it wants somebody to come and to deal with this dragon that keeps doing all of this stuff. Imagine you're hearing that fairy tale, you're living in that context, and then somebody comes and says, I have the fear, I have the one that can vanquish the dragon. It's a lamb. Right? That would be perplexing. Like, what's a lamb going to do? How does a lamb fight a dragon? Right? This is part of the imagery you want to have into your mind. Because here's what happens in Revelation 5. There's a scene where there's this level of kind of mourning because there's this title deed to the earth. It's a scroll. And there's seven seals that have sealed the title deed to the earth. And the question is, who can open the title deed? Who can take this back? Who can defeat the village that is tortured by this dragon? And then one of the elders says, ah, behold, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he goes, sweet, a lion versus a dragon. That's a fair fight. I love the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can take down the dragon. And so John snaps his head and he looks, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And then he sees a lamb that is slain. And it completely flips the script. Like everybody would love a lion. That's the way Babylon would fight. You fight beast with beast, violence with violence, hatred with hatred, right? Force with force, military against military. But see, the lamb who is slain does everything upside down and backwards, right? Like the way he defeats Satan, sin, and death is how? He gives himself willingly, goes to a cross, doesn't curse his haters, says forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing without a word wins over the world, right? Could call down legions of angels, but he's like, that's not how I do business because this is team lamb and team lamb does things unlike any other team dragon or Babylon on the planet. It's so beautiful and uncomfortable all at the same time because you don't fight Babylon with Babylon. You don't deal with the dragon as a dragon. You don't defeat bad power with good power necessarily because in our world, all power is kind of the problem. We all think we're leveraging our power for good, but so often it just kind of contaminates at some point. This is where Tolkien was so brilliant in the Lord of the Rings, right? If you've ever read it or you've seen the movies, what's the temptation when the humans get the ring? They want to use the ring, the ring of power. And they think that, you know what, because we're good and the bad guy's bad, we can use power for good. And every time the lesson's the same, no, the problem is the power itself. You can't leverage it for good. You will corrupt it somehow and it will corrupt you somehow. That's why that whole thing about like, hey, absolute power absolutely corrupts. Like that's just embedded in this, which is why then the lamb comes and does it all so different. And he leverages something utterly otherworldly in the process. And so what are the values of team lamb and the Jerusalem above? How do you overcome the earth's evil? You do kingdom good. You do kingdom good, right? So part of it is you look at those, those principles of Babylon, Rome, you pick any, you just pick our world, the way it gets business done. And you go, I know for sure we don't do it that way. 
We have to leverage this lamb-like stuff, especially a lamb slain. It's one thing to just be a lamb, but now this is a, a slain lamb at that. In Revelation, there's three key things that you use to overcome. First of all is witness. Witness. The witness of the early church as it faced Rome, like I said earlier, was one of sacrifice, submission, a willingness to be persecuted with joy. Like they took Jesus's word seriously from the Sermon on the Mount. They're like, okay, we're going to do that. They will use a sword. We will use peace. They will use violence, but we will be peacemakers. They want us to be afraid and we will show that we have courage because we trust our Christ, a lamb slain. So this incredible witness, this is why it talks about the martyrs in Revelation, right? They're the most celebrated crew, like in chapter seven, like they're amazing, right? Because they're like, we didn't fight like the beast does. We don't fight like the dragon does. We don't fight like Babylon does. We do it so utterly different. We believe that we are victorious when we lay ourselves down. That's bold. That's crazy. And that's the stuff of team lamb. Another thing you see that's really pertinent about this group of people, aside from witness is worship. That's why there's these spirituals all throughout revelation. When they're pressed, when they're crushed, when they're martyred, they sing, they sing and they sing like, Lord, come Lord, finish this, but also Lord, you're mighty, you're great. And we know that your ways are wise and just, we don't always understand them. We have great fear sometimes to want to execute those, but we know there's blessing to do it. So they do it. And so they worship. And so witness and worship. And then the third thing is works. Works comes up a lot in the book of revelation But under this idea of works is probably three things. First of all, it's verbal works. We speak like the lamb who was slain. And then next there's action works where we live like the lamb who was slain. And then there's allegiance works, which we suffer for the lamb who is slain. It's another word that John loves to utilize. Uh, They were allegiant. They were allegiant. They were allegiant. Some versions translate it as victorious, 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 or overcomers. They're overcomers, right? And that's the space that, that the lamb wants his lamblings to follow in. If that's a word, I might be making stuff up. But we all follow the lamb slain. He's like, right, that's how you do life in Babylon. You take a different path. You do things in a different way, especially because what Revelation says is that we are wearing these robes of the lamb. We are washed in the blood of the lamb. We are covered in the blood of the lamb. That's not just simply our forgiveness, but it's also our identity. We live lamb-like. We do lamby things in a world of beasts and dragons, right? We do it different. So we don't get to grab swords and kill dragons in our Babylonian way but our lives become this ability to pierce the works of the dragon. When we live the Christ like way, a Christ centric way, a Jesus like living way. Now that's hard, but that's bold and that's beautiful. And that's how the lamb gets things done. If I used Matt speak on this one, it's that stuff. I love what does it mean to live kingdom in Babylon? What does it mean to live team lamb when you're facing team dragon sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the plane, fruit of the spirit, definition of love, right? Like you just go to those sources and those places. And what Jesus is saying is that's how you undo the mess. You're different than the mess. You do stuff like the mess. You just make more mess. And through the history of Christianity, there are certainly strategic moments where we see the church said, you know what? What gets things done is team Babylon stuff. 
We're going to take power and control and we're going to use the sword and we're going to use might and we're going to use control and we're going to get this stuff done. And every time, man, team lamb just suffers because it's team lamb trying to do team dragon tactics. And so revelation calls us to something different, to be otherworldly, right? To bring heaven to earth in Jesus like ways, because that's the future, right? The future is that. In fact, in Revelation 20, it gives us a glimpse of the future to come when the final chess pieces are moved and Jesus takes the king of the earth, basically. We see the end of the dragon's rule, the conclusion of Babylon's way, and the the removal of sin and death. And with that, chapter 21 and 22, Jerusalem descends. Eden is returned to the planet, but it has a city And the leaves of the tree of life are granted to heal the nations. And God fulfills his promise. He blesses the nations. He welcomes the kings of the earth. And he dwells with his creation as they see him face to face. One of the warnings to the church and one of the reminders of the church or to the church in Revelation is uh, come out. Come out of the nations. Come out of the world Don't do it like the nations. Don't do it like the world. The only way you're going to change the world is to be different than the world, right? And again, it's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's not always going to be familiar, but it's team lamb, right? And I want to be team lamb. I'm not always great at that. I sometimes really do like team dragon. I like the Babylon stuff, but I want to be about the Jerusalem to come, not about the Babylon that will one day be a has-been. That's the difference of tone. And so right now, I just want to invite everybody to take a moment to close your eyes. And I know on a day where it's like, hey, we're out under a tent. We're out in the, the, the sunshine and fun. And now, man, there's heavy thing. But I think the heavy thing is a beautiful thing. And I think it's a great reminder of life with Team Lamb is better. Doing life as Team Lamb is better. It's not easier. It's going to be probably tougher, more complicated, We might all have to give up something to be team lamb in this world, but that's how the world has changed. That's how things are even accelerated, according to Peter. You want to see the end come and all of its goodness and glory and Jerusalem descend and change everything forever? Man, then then live in a certain way to hasten the day, he says. And so today I've got two different challenges. For the first, goes back to that message of come out. Some of us maybe here today or maybe watching online you're, you're still very much entrenched in like team dragon, team Babylon. You're like, man, I don't know Jesus. I don't follow Jesus. I'm not a Christian. That's not what I do in life. And I go, man, this is a day then you can be like, I want to be team lamb. I want to do things different. I want to embrace this way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom. Right. And, and if you decide that's, that's what you feel you're drawn to today, that's a prayer for you. We just say, Jesus, I confess, man, I've been team dragon. I've been living my own way, doing my own thing, choosing my own path. I have not live for you. I've not loved you. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. But Jesus, I know you came, you lived, you died on a cross. You rose from the dead to give me a new life so I could be team lamb and make a difference in this world because I know this world's going to change with a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be renewed. If you make that your prayer today, we would love to know. And there's a tile on our app. You can just let us know, man, I prayed that today. That'd be awesome. For the rest of us, I give the challenge, including to myself, that we would all live Team Lamb, right? That we'd really investigate. What does it mean to live Team Lamb in a world of Team Dragon? 
that we would be difference makers by that upside down and backwards ethos of Jesus that changes everything. Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to do it not out of shame or out of guilt, but out of love, out of appreciation, out of a hunger to make your world a better place because we bring your kingdom values to bear on the values of Babylon. We look to you and we certainly need you. We ask these things of you in your good name. Amen.